0: Mark writes in verse 1, and he says, And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand." The word of the Lord. We better pray before diving into this one. Father, you know how much we need your help, and so we ask that you would enable our minds to understand. And enable our hearts to love the truth that we see taught by Jesus here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've reached it. We have waded deep into the hardest passage in the Gospel of Mark. Really, the the hardest passage in any of the, the Gospels, the sections where Jesus teaches on the end times or on what theologians call eschatology. We're looking at the things that are to come in the future at the end of days. This is the cream of the crop when it comes to difficult passages, the cream of the crop when it comes to difficult doctrines. How are we to think? How are we to think about the end times when we read passages like this, when we think about what is to come? I think it's important for us to wrap our brains around what God intends the end times to do in us. And to start out, I think it's important for us to know what God does not intend end times for. First of all, God certainly does not intend end times to lead us into divisive debates. Uh, Many have fallen into the error of just taking Jesus' teaching here or any section of the scripture that speaks of end times and leaving it in the, the theoretical realm, just as a fun little intellectual exercise. I think that Christians should absolutely be agreed on the fact that Jesus literally is going to come again, but there is room for fellowship with one one another and disagreement over the fine print details about these things. It's not meant to lead us into divisive debates, nor is it meant to lead us into debilitating defeat. Uh, Maybe in your personal time of reading the Bible, when you get to sections like these, these are the sections where you, you kind of flip into skim reading mode. And maybe you kind of think to yourself, I don't understand this. I don't know that I'm ever going to understand this. Jesus isn't looking for us to be debilitated by these truths. He wants us to understand them. They are for us. So what are end times meant to do? What we see from Jesus' teaching is end times are meant to drive us to disciplined duty. There are things that he wants us to be doing in light of the times that are coming. We have certain responsibilities that he wants us to take up and take on. And the end times, too, are meant to lead us to delight. The truth that God knows the end from the beginning, and we're not left to chaos. He knows what he's doing. He has written the end, and we can find delight in his wisdom. And of course, the delight that Jesus is going to come back, our ultimate hope. He is our heavenly husband. We can't wait to be with him again when he comes. But why should we care? Why should we care about the details here in Mark 13? Well, first of all, I think we see in verses 1 through 2 that we should care because Jesus' predictions here can be trusted. Jesus' predictions can be trusted. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 13. If you take a look at verse 1 and you notice the context, They are coming out of the Jerusalem temple. Jesus has been teaching there. Uh, We've been tracking with him in Jerusalem in the temple ever since chapter 11. He leaves the temple and his disciples point out to him uh, the amazing nature of the temple. They they tell him, look, teacher, look at the amazing, impressive nature of all of these buildings in the temple. The temple was an impressive structure if he would have been in the Jerusalem city. It would have been the focal point high up on a mountain, and it was an, an immaculate building. It was plated in gold. So much so that if you were walking through in midday, the sun shining off of that gold would cause you to have to look away. It was so blindingly brilliant. And the disciples point that out to him. But in verse 2, his shocking reply, Jesus' shocking reply, is to tell them it's all going to go. Away take a look at verse 2 verse 2 Jesus says you see these great buildings There will not be left here one stone Upon another that will not be thrown down Jesus predicts that the temple will be destroyed But even more than that He predicts the way in which it will be destroyed of course We know from history 40 years later in 70 AD There would be a Jewish revolt in the city of Jerusalem, and the Emperor Titus would send Roman soldiers in there to put down the revolt, and in so doing, the whole city got lit on fire and was destroyed, including the temple, and the soldiers were instructed to remove the stones one after another out of the temple to salvage all of the gold that had been melted off of the temple. Friends, if Jesus could predict that event that was to happen in 40 years' time, we can trust him for the other details in this text that have yet to happen. We should take him seriously. His predictions can be trusted. And That takes us to verse three and four. The the disciples are shocked that Jesus would say that this is going to take place. In verses three and four, as they sit on the Mount of Olives. Uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they sit down with him privately and they ask him in verse four, Lord, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And as Jesus answers them, he replies not just by telling them about the end of the temple, but Jesus also uses this as an occasion to tell them about the end of time. And as he tells us about the future, he does so not by telling us how and when the end will come in the fine print details, but rather how we can be prepared and what we ought to do as the end draws near. Knowing that the end is coming, how can you and I as followers of Jesus be prepared and what ought we be doing while we wait for it to come? Three things in Jesus' teaching that I want to point out out to it this morning, three things that Jesus teaches. First of all, stay steady. Things have always been bad, and they'll only get worse. Aren't you happy you came to church this morning? (laughs) Stay steady. Things have always been bad, and they'll only get worse. Take a look at verse five. As Jesus teaches them in verse five, he starts by saying, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus here is telling his disciples, telling us that as his followers, we not, should not be overly perplexed, we should not be overly reactionary when bad things happen in this world. Jesus wants us to understand that these hard realities are realities that will simply always be because we live in a fallen world that is plagued by sin. War will happen. Natural disasters will take place. Famines, pandemics will come. These are things that have been in existence ever since Genesis 3, ever since sin entered the picture. The historian Will Durant in one of his history books had this amazing fact. He said, in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of those years have seen no war. War has pretty much been a constant. War and natural disasters, they should break our hearts and we should pray about them and try to avoid them. But we should not be surprised when they come. Christians understand that world peace will never be a reality. The uniting of the nations will never happen until the Prince of Peace himself comes and establishes peace and justice finally in himself. John Lennon and Yoko Ono back in the 70s during their, their, what did they call those things, where they just laid in bed for a week, Uh, whatever those things were. Uh, That was the time where they sang that really famous song, Give Peace a Chance, and they, they just sang over and over again, all we are saying is give peace a chance. They meant well, but they were misguided. Only Jesus. Only Jesus is the one who can give final and ultimate peace to the world. And that's why in verse 5 and 6, Jesus warns us against taking stock in people who have a Messiah complex. In verse 5, Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. We, not, we should not take stock in people who claim to have the answers for world peace, those who claim to have the puzzle of the end times figured out and, and understand exactly when it's going to take place and have all of the dates timed and all of these things. And Jesus wants Christians to understand that life is hard and full of conflict. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So we as Christians, Jesus is saying, We stay steady. We ride out the storms that come our way. I love the hymn that says, oft in sorrow, oft in woe, onward Christian, onward go. Maintain the strife, bear the toil, strengthened with the bread of life. The steadiness of the Christian is one way. In which we show the, 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 the power of, of the Christian faith in our lives. It's one way that we are lights for Christ and salt to the world. When the world around us is raging, Christians have a steady confidence in what God is doing. And people will notice it. People will see the difference between us and those who don't have the hope that we have. I think that's what Paul had in mind in Philippians 4, 5, and 6 when he said, let your reasonableness... Your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But when we do get anxious about the occurrences in our world, what do we do? In everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Point one, stay steady. Things have always been bad. They'll only get worse. Point two from Jesus' teaching, be ready, be ready. We have an unpopular message to tell to the nations. We have an unpopular message to tell to the nations. If you take a look at verse nine, verse nine, Jesus predicts the hardship and persecution that the disciples and the early Christians will face for being a witness for him. In verse nine, he says, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Uh, Pop quiz, what book of the Bible can we see verse nine fulfilled in? Verse nine. Acts, right? The book of Acts, the early history of the church. When you read the book of Acts, you see that's exactly what they encountered. As they bore witness for Christ, they experienced persecution from the secular world and from the religious world, but Jesus gives them hope that their persecution, will not go to waste. Take a look at verse 10. He gives them the hope that God will use their persecution to, f- to bring the gospel to the unreached people of the world. In verse 10, he says, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. I think there's a clear connection between the persecution spoken of in, Ch- in verse nine and the furtherance of the gospel to the nations in verse 10. When you read Acts, what happened as the Christians were persecuted? They were spread out, and they went out to, uh, to flee persecution, but they didn't stop witnessing. As they spread out, they kept sharing the message, and God used their suffering to bring the gospel to places it wouldn't have gone otherwise. One of God's, mean, one of God's means for world evangelism is the persecution that we face, and that Christians face all over the world. Satan intends persecution to shut us up, but Jesus uses persecution to send us out. And as they are witnesses for Christ in the midst of persecution, Jesus gives them confidence in verse 11 that as they witness for Christ, they do not do so on just their own strength and their own power, but that they will be divinely assisted. Take a look at verse 11. Verse 11, Jesus says, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Their evangelism would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that what Jesus has in mind here is unique to the apostles in particular. They would be specially appointed and anointed with the Spirit to be divine spokesmen on behalf of Christ, but we know from the New Testament that we too, we have the help of the Holy Spirit. We have the word that he has inspired so that we have the message that we know we ought to tell to others when it's our turn to witness for Christ. And we have his power, his help, his comfort in the midst of witness. There are so many lessons in verse 9 and 10 for our missional living. I just want to point out three. I think Jesus' words here, number one, they they show us that our highest priority in missions ought to be gospel proclamation. Our highest priority ought to be gospel proclamation. We have a lot of priorities in missions. But the highest, most important one is getting the gospel message out to people who need it. I think that's why in verse nine, Jesus says, you will bear witness. Verse 10, the gospel must be proclaimed. Verse 11, do not be anxious about what you are to say. Christianity is a proclamational faith. It is a faith that is based on a message. That is to go out in power to the nations. That's why we're called evangelicals. We are literally gospelers. We tell the gospel to the nations. Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 10, talking about how the gospel will reach the unreached people groups of the world. He said, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Friend, I wonder as you sit here this morning, you look back through your week, how many times did you speak to others about your hope in the Lord Jesus? and the hope that you have in the gospel. That should be a daily, normal, routine thing for us to do. I wonder how we can get better at not letting opportunities slip by, but taking up every opportunity that Jesus gives us to talk about him and the hope that we have in him. And in so doing, number two, we can proclaim the gospel confidently through the power of of the Holy Spirit. We all know what it's like in the midst of that conversation when we see a door opening for the gospel, and we kind of wish that the door was closing instead of opening further. And We think to ourselves, I really should share Jesus, I really should share Jesus, I really should share Jesus. Okay, here we go. In the midst of that moment, the Holy Spirit is our encourager, he's our comforter. Even when we give the worst gospel presentation we possibly could the Holy Spirit is able to use it in ways far beyond our understanding. But as we witness for the gospel, Jesus tells us to have realistic expectations. He tells us in verse 12 and 13, we can expect hatred from others if we truly live the Christian life. Take a look at verse 12. These are sobering verses. Verse 12, Jesus says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. I was shocked this week in just looking at verse 13 that Jesus doesn't say you'll be disagreed with or you won't be tolerated. Jesus uses strong language in verse 13. He says, you will be hated. The world is opposed to the gospel. The world does not want us to follow the Lord Jesus. Some of you, I know your stories, you have experienced the pain of this. You have lost friends because of your stand on the gospel. You have estranged relationships with your family because you are committed to Jesus. Jesus tells us all, the one who endures to the end, it takes endurance. The one who endures to the end will be saved. I think that's why we should be so encouraged by these baptisms today. Uh, These folks have counted the cost, and they have determined that following Jesus and being committed to him is better than anything that they might lose in this world and in this life. Uh, They have come to see the truth that Jesus came as Savior and Lord to die for sin, to raise again from the dead, and they, as the song says, They've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. The world behind them, the cross before them, no turning back. They are confident. Point two, be ready. We have a message to tell to the nations. And lastly, point three. Point three, be strong, you will face great tests and deceptions. Be strong, you will face great tests and deceptions. Let's take a look at verse 14. Verse 14, we're getting into the deepest weed in this passage because Jesus talks about this very complicated thing, the abomination of desolation. Verse 14, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Who is this abomination of desolation or what is this abomination of desolation? Uh, I don't think that we should see it as an event. It's definitely a person because Jesus says that this abomination of desolation will be standing where he ought not to be. And Whoever this person is, he's going to wreak havoc on the world because verses 15 and following show Jesus uses terrible language about fleeing and uh, how we ought to pray it not be in wintertime, all these things. There's been a lot. Said about who this individual is. Jesus certainly is referring to something the disciples were aware of because he's referring to something all the way back in the Old Testament. The abomination of desolation is mentioned in the book of Daniel in chapters 9, 11, and 12. I leave those passages for you to look at on your own and be encouraged by uh, this week as you dig in deeper study. But let me just tell you what one popular translation or interpretation of who this is And then let me give you an alternative that I think is probably a a more biblical approach, okay? So first one that is popular, and then one that I think is more accurate. Uh, First of all, one interpretation of who this is that is very uh, popular is that this was Emperor Titus who led the the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70 when the temple fell. Uh, Jesus probably does have that in mind here. Uh, Verses 15 through 18, if you read what happens there, it reads a whole lot like what happened in the city of Jerusalem, how people fled when that occasion took place. But I think Jesus has something more in mind. I think he has something that is still yet to come in mind. Because if you take a look at verse 19, verse 19, he says about this event, In those days there will be such tribulation as has not been From the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. We know the day that Jerusalem fell was a horrific day in world history, but it wasn't the worst day in world history. Jesus certainly has something in the future in mind. I think there's an already and not yet dimension to what Jesus is speaking here about the abomination of desolation. So let me give you what I think is the most plausible identification of who this person is. I think the most plausible identification of the abomination of desolation is the Antichrist. If you take a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13, uh, 3 to 12, we won't look at it uh, this morning, but you might want to jot that down in your margin in your Bible, Paul uses the same language that Jesus uses here in this passage speaking directly about the Antichrist who is to come. Jesus here in Mark 13 and Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 talk about this figure who will come in the future, who will be the ultimate Antichrist, who will put himself in the place of God. He will stand in absolute opposition to all things that belong to God, all that are God's, and he will wreak havoc on believers. But There's something that we are warned about for us in the immediate, because Jesus says, if you take a look at verse 22, take a look at verse 22, Jesus warns us. He says, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect be on your guard. I've told you all things beforehand. There is going to be the great antichrist, but all throughout time there will be many antichrist figures. First John talks about this in chapter two, verse 18. John said, it is the last hour. We're living ever since Jesus ascended to heaven. It is the last days. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming. So now, many antichrists have come. Friends, what are we supposed to do? Uh, this is very technical. Are we supposed to go and read Left Behind? Or are we supposed, what, do we, what do we do? What does this mean for us? What's the bottom line? What does this practically mean for our lives? I think the right response is for all of us this morning to take to heart the warning that Jesus gives in verse 21 through 23, that in ways that we don't even fully perceive, you may not even realize there are spiritual forces of darkness at work in this world that are seeking to lead you astray and seeking to deceive you, seeking to pull you into things that seem to be right and true in order to pull you away from what God has ultimately said is true and holy and just and good. This is not a time for flimsy Christianity. This is not a time for Christians to just be Sunday morning pew sitters. This is a time for us to know the truth, to understand the schemes of darkness in our own times, and to avoid them and fight against them. Do you know God's truth as opposed to error? Do you know the difference between righteousness and sin? Do you know who God is and who God most definitely is not? Do you know the gospel enough to protect it, defend it, and declare it to those who so desperately need to know it, do you know the gospel well enough that it can be the anchor for your soul and life when the hardest storms rage in our days and in our times. Verse 23, Jesus says, be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. That statement is both an encouragement. It's an encouragement because he's left us everything that we need to know. There's nothing that is left out of this book that is necessary for us to know in order to do well and to persevere as Christians in our day. But the statement is also a warning. He has told you all things beforehand. Do you know what he has told us so that we can be prepared? When we think of the end times, They are meant to be a delight to us. Next week, as we finish chapter 13, we're going to see the hope of all hopes that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to make all things right. That's our ultimate delight. That's our ultimate hope. But the end times are also meant to lead us into disciplined duty. We have a message to tell. We have responsibilities to take up. For each one of us, stay steady. Things have always been bad. We should not be surprised when conflict comes into our world. Stay strong in the Lord. And be ready. We have a message to tell, and God gives us so many opportunities to tell it to those who so desperately need the salvation that only comes through the Lord Jesus. And be strong. We are facing deception and tests that we may not even be fully aware of. But Jesus has given everything that we need through his word, through his Holy Spirit, and through each other that we can persevere and stay strong together as we seek to live on mission for the Lord.